Listener Production. Rosie Waterland is a very funny lady whose comedy is entirely her own. We were colleagues in online publishing when Rosie became a household name for her satirical recaps of The Bachelor. Five years on, they're still making me giggle. Hi, I'm Osha Ginsberg. The young woman you're about to meet first came to prominence writing hilarious recaps of a reality television show I host called The Bachelor. Her writing captured the public's imagination and made glorious fun of my hair. Rosie has since left reality television behind and she's gone on to write two best-selling memoirs, host podcasts and tour stand-up shows all over the country. Except they're not quite stand-up shows because Rosie performs sitting down. And I take my laptop and rest it on the toilet so I can watch Netflix in the shower. Like, I'm literally in the prime of my life. Never one for convention, Rosie's comedy is a mixture of storytelling, feminism, pop culture and fart jokes. The memories she recounts from her challenging childhood are as dark as they are hysterical. Every time my dad passed out drunk or my mum didn't come home, I was like, keep it up because... (laughs) I'm remembering all of this. (laughs) This is going to be in a book one day, so keep it up. Rosie also writes and speaks about mental health. She's been open and upfront with her own experiences, giving voice and comfort to a generation of young people. Rosie makes talking about mental health cool. Today, she's a legit star. So hard doing red carpet events. What a problem to have. Rosie Waterland is writing comedy for television and film, co-hosting her award-winning podcast, Just the Gist, and is currently touring her show, Kid Chameleon, in Melbourne and Sydney. The weekend list is on its way, but first, here is my interview with the irreverent Rosie Waterland. Rosie Waterland, welcome to the weekend briefing. I'm starting with a hard one. Do you remember how we met? <laughs> well, I think well we met over email first. I think is uh, the way of things these days. I submitted an article, like a column, I guess, to Mamma Mia, and you were the big wig there, and you emailed me back and said you loved it and you were going to publish it, and that was the first time I'd ever been published. And I was so excited. And um, then I just kept hassling you with more and more things that you kept publishing. And then, you know, after a while, you were just like, do you want to be an intern? And I was like, yes. And then after like, I think four days of interning, you were like, "Mm, do you just want a job? And I said, (laughs) yes, I think that's how we met. That is exactly how I remember it as well. And the reason that I asked that is twofold. Firstly, to show how you had this awesome willingness to just have a go to send stuff into a website Mm -hmm. to a blank email that most people ignore but also because a lot of people did that Rosie and a lot of it wasn't so good and I (laughs) will never forget the morning that I opened that inbox and went this is extraordinary like this this writing is extraordinary how on earth is this someone I haven't heard of before. So it didn't surprise me that by 31, you had two best-selling books. They were both memoirs. So what Mm. I wanted to ask was, how do you feel now about telling your own story? And do you want to keep telling it? I will say that I feel like 
two memoirs by the time I was 30 does make me feel like a bit of a narcissistic dickhead. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I guess my excuse is I had quite an interesting childhood so that, you know, I did have some kind of interesting story to tell, but also I signed a two book deal. And so once I did the first one, I had no choice. I have to also do the second one. <laughs> but um, it was, um, I think, a really important part of my healing from like the trauma of my childhood to take ownership of my story. So um, I found that really helpful. But um, I am just so, I, I, I'm getting to the point where I'm really sick of writing about myself. So I've moved on to fiction now so I can just start making up stories instead of telling my own. I'm out of stories. I'm tapped out. Two memoirs at 30 means I've literally got no more stories left to tell. That's it. In the past, you've written a lot about some pretty difficult subjects. You've written about mental health and childhood trauma, but you always manage to make it funny, which is amazing. (laughs) Talk to us about (laughs) like the technical side of that. How do you manage to make darkness silly and funny? And I almost want to use the word relatable, but that's a gross word. Yeah. No, I, oh yeah, but I guess it's a fair word. It's a fair description. I, you know what? People always say, how do you do that? And I say, how do you not do it? Because if you, if I didn't, I think I would have just gone a bit nuts. There's that old trope about the funniest comedians being the people with the most sort of darkness within them. And, and I think that the truth of that is that the darkest places are the places that force you to look for light and to look for humour. And so it was more just that applying humour to my story was a way of getting through it and a way of surviving it. Laughter has always been the thing that um, throughout my life, just sitting back and laughing at my story and laughing at my situation. I mean, I guess if you don't laugh, you'll cry is what they say. So um, that's sort of what I've always tried to do. And that's what I applied to my books as well. You are a writer, you're a podcast maker, and you are a comedian as well. And you're touring a show right now. Tell me about the stand-up comedy scene because it's, I imagine it's pretty tough (laughs) being a woman comedian who didn't come up through the ranks of stand-up comedy. You've kind of come in through the side door, not the front door. Yes. Um, And I will say nobody on the scene's ever been anything but lovely to me. But I do know that there is a sense that with stand-up comedy that you start at the bottom and you take 3 a.m. slots in dingy little clubs and you work on five minutes of material and then 10 and then half an hour and you slowly build it up. Whereas I just like, you know, my book had come out and it was a bestseller and there was interest in me doing a show. So I just wrote an hour-long show, got a tour promoter and started doing sell-out shows, <laughs> which I think probably did piss some people off, but um, it's not that I didn't work my way up. I just worked my way up in a different way. I know you've always loved television ever since you were a kid. You've described it as your third parent. Can you tell us about sort of when that love of TV started and what you used to watch that you loved so much? Well, I mean, I think I should correct you there. With my parents, I'd say TV was my only parent, (laughs) (laughs) my only kid one. (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, TV was um, 
it was my best friend. It was my parent. It was my comfort. It was my safe place. I've always had a TV in my room from when I was a very little kid. And I think there was just something about being able to turn on the TV and shut my bedroom door and ignore everything that was going on on the other side of that door. I mean, you know, both my parents were alcoholics. My mom and dad both had problems with serious mental health. My dad was schizophrenic. You know, my mum was doing sex work to get by. It was it was a very tumultuous, difficult, scary time for me and my sisters as kids. And so TV really was just an escape. I mean, I always loved sitcoms the most, just sitcoms forever and ever. I loved watching stand-up. I remember being maybe 10 and staying up till like, you know, 11 o'clock one night to watch Jerry Seinfeld's stand-up special that was airing on Australian TV. And I just liked jokes and I liked the way they told stories. And I wanted to not only live the lives that they lived in those shows, but I wanted to create those shows. There was something about it that I thought when I grow up, I will work doing that. And that will be as far away from where I am now as possible. I think that was sort of um, the idea behind it for me as a kid. Sounds like almost genuine escapism, right? People talk about TV being escapism, but for you, it it really was. It really was. And still is. TV is still probably my best friend and my, my one true love, to be honest. Your childhood wasn't an easy one, as you've just told us and that I know you've written about. Something I wanted to ask, though, is that you clearly had this big ambition, right? This, This big dream, but not just a dream, but a drive to get it done and to go after that kind of glittering picture of Rosie writing for television, being on television, being on stages and the rest. With fairly absent parents, how was that ambition nurtured? Other very generous adults who stepped in to help. You know, my uncle um, took legal guardianship of me when I was 14 because he could see, you know, how um, much I loved school and how much drive I had to do well and and he wanted to send me to a a good school and um, help me go to university. And so I think him um, essentially adopting me when I was 14 was a huge deal and a big change in my life. And then just along the way, having other people, I mean, you are probably one of the people I would consider who stepped in to help me and Mia Friedman as well, when we started at Mamma Mia. And um, I feel lucky. Oh, and I know you don't like people saying that because you did write the book, not just lucky, but I will say that I did have the drive and the talent and I worked really hard, but I was also, I think, very fortunate to have people step in and support me and guide me through that. So... I think that was it, really. You made a name for yourself what feels like about 10 million years ago writing satirical recaps of The Bachelor. Do oh, my still... gosh, Jan, did you know that it, it is, like, almost 10 years ago, the no. first one? That no, is how I long was joking. we've known each other and how long it's been. I know. Well, Osha said the other day that they're almost up to season 10, and I was like, are you? Wait, what? This is Osha Gunsberg, as in the host of The Bachelor. The host. <laughs> I talk about him like everybody knows who he is. (laughs) You two have become friends since you used to write the satirical recaps of the show. The show's clearly played a role in your life. I wanted to zoom out a little bit and ask about reality TV. Is it almost dead? Look, you know, I stepped away from The Bachelor, writing about The Bachelor when I did, gosh, I think I stopped in 2016 was the last time I did it. 
Um, because yeah, I just felt like it was getting to a repetitive point that it wasn't really exciting or, or fun for me to write about it anymore. I wasn't writing anything new because it's always the same. I mean, but that's the nature of reality television. It is very formulaic. I'm not sure if it's dead, but they're certainly getting desperate. Like the kinds of things you see on shows like Maths, Married at First Sight, and then other shows they're creating really do seem to be quite exploitative and just doing whatever it will take to create a spectacle and to get people to watch. And to me, that is a sign that they've got nowhere left to go. But I do think that there is some reality TV that is sort of diversifying and that's really exciting. I mean, there's the show that just came out recently called Bling Empire and it's basically like a real housewives kind of franchise, but it's with all rich Asian people who live in Los Angeles. And so it's kind of like, the reality version of Crazy Rich Asians. Is it dead? No. Is it going in some crazy, awful directions? Yes, but they're also (laughs) sort of discovering new things. Scripted television is the sort of thing you are doing and want to be doing. I know that. Can you tell us a Mm. little bit about what you're working on at the moment? A little bit. I have a show in development in South Australia um, with a production company here. Um, oh, because I'm here. I'm, I've moved to Adelaide, which is weird. It's scripted and it is fiction, but it is loosely based around the story, which is a pretty crazy story of how my mother found her birth mother and the fallout of that discovery and their relationship. We can't go past the fact you just said that you're living in Adelaide now. Why the <laughs> city switch? Oh, Jamila, I fell in love and um, because of lockdown, I fell in, well, I started dating uh, someone, a young gentleman called Caleb Bond at the start of lockdown last year and um, he came over and stayed with me in Sydney and then he kind of got stuck there for three months because the borders closed and then um, once the borders opened back up and he went back to Adelaide, I said, oh, I'll come stay with you for a couple of weeks. And then it, everything was locked down. And I sort of, after a few months, I was like, I think I've accidentally moved here. And he was like, yeah, I think you have. <laughs> so then we just kind of made it official. And so now I'm officially an Adelaidean. What's the end game going to look like for Rosie Waterland? What does the dream look like? Not just the career dream, but the whole bit of it. Well, an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, obviously. Cool, yep. I really just want to make enough money to buy a house that I never have to move out of. That is because, you know, I lived in, I would say, over 100 houses in my life growing up and I just, Mm. a dream of mine has always just been to have one place that I can stay forever. I don't know, maybe some kids, we'll see. I I still don't know about that. An Oscar and a house. I reckon they both sound like pretty realistic dreams, given how you're going, (laughs) mate. Rosie, thank you for being part of the weekend briefing. Thanks, Jam. That's all we've got time for with the amazing Rosie Waterland. Her show, Kit Chameleon, is currently touring all over the country right now up until May. So please make sure you do not miss out. Welcome to The Weekend List, and I am being joined by the fabulous Tate McGregor. Tate, welcome. What have you got for us today? 
I want to tell you about a series I've just finished watching on Netflix. It's called Behind Her Eyes. It's a six-episode show where a single mother enters this twisted world of mind games after she begins an affair with her boss and then starts befriending his mysterious wife, who is played by Bono's daughter. But it basically goes into the world of astral projection and lucid dreaming. And the last episode has so many twists and turns. Jamila, you have to watch it, please. I work for your husband. You work with David? Small world. They're both happier with me than they are with each other. You shy. What about your wife? Is it happening again, David? What are you talking about? You know what I mean. But tell me, Jamila, what have you been reading? Always reading because the only thing I watch on television is ABC Kids and I feel like I can't <laughs> recommend more Play School to you all despite it being very, very good. Or Bluey, been, or Bluey as we know. Or, well, Bluey is glorious. I have been reading The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. And this is a debut novel and I've got to say it's the most stunning debut I've read in a really long time. It's about forbidden love. It's set um, in the deep south before the Civil War. It is about a romantic love affair between two young male slaves and the solace and the freedom that they find in each other, even though them being together threatens them being alive and them being able to continue their lives. It is the most captivating love story. You will leave completely in love with the two central characters and really deeply invested in both their suffering and this really special romance. Wow, what a dichotomy. Interesting. I want to bring you around to a playlist on Spotify I've been getting around. I've noticed it's getting a bit colder, so I want something to warm you up. It's called Butter, and it's a smooth, groovy listening playlist that keeps you nice and cosy. It's got the likes of Arlo Parks and Cautious Clay on there, and it's updated pretty regularly. So if you're looking for something just to chuck on in the background, search Butter on Spotify. Great recommendation, Tate. That is all we've got time for, everyone. Please make sure you go hunting wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode of The Briefing. We will be back on Monday morning. Tom and Annika will be here with your daily news download. Listener.